This is John Chambers, and I want to welcome everyone to another episode of Chambers Talks. It's my quarterly LinkedIn podcast, and it's a discussion about tech disruptions, uh, leadership, disrupt or get disrupted, grow or you die, many of the lessons learned from each of the guests and sharing the stories behind those lessons learned. It's a chance. I hope that it will be very entertaining for you today. And with my very, very good friend, Cedric Nike, the CEO of Digital Industries from Siemens. Uh, he's on their board of directors. And he's been a great friend of mine for 16 years. We'll try to talk about the trends going in the industry and develop those in a way that you can learn from them and share it with others. We're going to cover a rather broad range because Cedric, uh, uh, when we worked together at Cisco for 16 years, uh, he kept being so good and so successful, I kept moving him from one group to the next group to the next group. So he had more to, uh, exposure, both geography-wise and across all functional areas than almost any of my other executives. Uh, the discussion will go on digital transformation and how you focus on market trends within that. How important are ecosystems? How do they work or don't? Uh, how do you really collaborate both within your company? How do you create the need to change? And how do you implement that change, especially in areas where people have been very successful. How do you disrupt yourself and how do you disrupt an industry? Uh, what are the emerging new technologies and really what they mean? <clears throat> and then my favorite one is about lessons in leadership. So Cedric, you and I can almost finish each other's sentences, although you talk a little bit with a German accent and I talk <laughs> with a West Virginia accent. But I, I think we're completely in agreement. The world's going to go digital and that every country, every company, uh, every household will go digital as well. Uh, how do you define what that really means as every company becomes a technology digital company? And what is the implication? How do you bring that to life in your mind? Yeah, I mean, and I was thinking about it and I often get the question, what does it mean? And and my answer is always quite simple. I mean, no one is becoming digital because it's a, it's not an end state. You become more digital, right? I mean, there's a lot of, of those um, technologies and capabilities which exist. So as we become more digital, there's two things which are important is how do we link the real world and the digital world? And the, um, the, the, the difference I think of is the digital twin. And I'll tell you a little story if you, if you want to think, what is a digital twin? I said that uh, in, in one of my first weeks at uh, joining Siemens board, um, I was invited over to the White House and I was sitting next to one of the luminaries which invented DNA, DNA sequencing. And he sat down next to me and said, Cedric, with your technology, I can predict the second of your death. And I'm like, whoa, that's one of those uh, killer moments in, in any sort of discussion at a, at a dinner party. And he says, no, no, let me tell you the story. With your DNA, I, I know the risks you have on developing certain illnesses. With your MRI technology, I can actually see something happening. And now with big data, I can actually correlate the two. So even before you develop, for example, cancer, I can say, look, these are the indicators of this happening. So I, I create a digital twin of you, and I can actually make you better before actually something happens. And the idea of, of going digital actually make is about making things better by having a digital twin of of the things which exist in the real world and making the better. You can make buildings better. You can make uh, cars better. You can make products better. And my idea really is about as companies be become and develop these capabilities, they're going to start creating of the physical world a digital twin, and they're going to optimize it, optimize it, optimize it. That's, that's what I think which is important. And this enables you to adapt much, much faster um, in, in, in crisis moments, and COVID was one of those. You know, it's fascinating. One of the, the challenges, great companies, and Siemens clearly is an amazing company for not decades, centuries. Uh, and once a company's been very successful, 
uh, it's very difficult to get it to change. Yet your responsibility, and you thrive on it, you're, you're responsible for really bringing it to life with new technology, uh, innovation, new business models. How do you focus and use digitization as an example within Siemens uh, in a way that gets a company to change and know they have to change? And maybe if you could give some examples of what's worked for you all that would be relevant to the audience as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because I used to be at uh, Siemens before I joined Cisco and joined you, and then I, I went back. And um, it's 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 one of those icons. Siemens is a hundred and seventy four years years old company, so it had to reinvent itself constantly to be relevant. Now you know much better than anyone else that if companies don't reinvent themselves constantly, they're becoming irrelevant in in the world. So I, I was brought in and said, "Look, can can you help us do this?" and and thank God Siemens had two sort of what I call near-death experiences. One, it completely also, thanks to Cisco, missed the telecommunication change, right? So that's one thing. I, I remember I was a young engineer. I was in, in charge of mobile internet technology. And I said, look, the internet will change everything. And I remember the CTO putting his big arm around me and say, look, Cedric, you're so young. We've been doing for 100 years voice. And uh, there's this John Chamber guy which says voice is going to be for free. He's wrong. This is never going to happen before the Americans will get the technology right. 100 years will pass because we have so much experience. And what happened within six years, we missed that boat. And the second thing which happened is a compliance crisis. So there's two moments which basically made um, Siemens extremely, extremely nervous about reinventing themselves constantly. So when I was invited back, the discussion was with, with uh, Joe Kayser was, hey, uh, do you want to come back? I said, well, why should I? He says, look, because if I don't change Siemens, if I don't take digitalization, if I don't take somebody like you to help me sort of reinvent and take a sort of a page out of the Cisco book, we will miss the strain. And, and we did. And we'd used a lot of uh, capabilities. And I'm using these these moments which exist in the organization, which are big shock moments because Siemens was built on basically telecommunication from the beginning. And we lost that train. And I said, look, if we don't reinvent ourselves, if we don't have this telecom moment, every time again, we will miss it. And we need to actually take digitalization to do that. So I, I, I take moments, emotional moments, and I, I link them to the possibilities which exist through digitalization. You know, very often we both believe in telling stories and, and lessons learned from others. Uh, Jack Welch, uh, uh, taught me an awful lot, and he was the leader one generation ahead of me from GE, and maybe the best leader in the business world at that point in time. But uh, he really drilled into my head, you will never have a great company until you have a near-death experience and you recover from it. Absolutely. Then you'll see if, how good a leader you are as a leader, and also you'll see uh, uh, if you're able to navigate through the challenges. Uh, for me, it was 2001. Uh, we were the most profitable company in the world, the highest market valuation, won every award imaginable, 40 quarters in a row with increasing sales and earnings, a bad year with 60% growth. We didn't even model for growth below 50%. And suddenly, in a period of a month and a half, we went from 70% growth to minus 45, which is mathematically impossible. But it hit us, and uh, it was the most trying time of my career. Uh, in terms of how to navigate through it, was I the right person to navigate through it? You always have self-doubts, and that's very healthy because if you're into a scenario that is that challenging and you don't have concerns and you're overconfident about being able to navigate through it, you're already in trouble. Uh, it was my toughest year's leadership, and in my mind, my most disappointing. Jack Welch called me up at the end of 2001, and he said, John, you now are a great leader and you have a great company. And I said, Jack, it, it doesn't feel like it. My shareholders have doubts about me. Even some of my strongest supporters in the company are beginning to, to question a little bit. 
And he laughed and he said, no, this will be your best year. And I've watched you execute through it. I said, you're gonna be the only one that ever told me that. And by the way, he was. Share your moment uh, in terms of disruption uh, in lessons learned. And uh, don't worry about stepping on my toes. That's part of a friendship is to be very candid. No, I mean, uh, these disruption moments, and I was thinking of it, you know, when I joined Cisco was 2001. So I joined this company, which was used to just success. That's the only mode which existed, success and growth. And I, I, I watched you also see on now how to say, how do you take a company which only knows one direction, which is up, and then say, how can we reinvent ourselves? What are the things we need to do? What are the the holy the, the holy aspects of things which we just can't continue doing and and I, as i said i mean these moments were very very defining for me and and i want to apply them and i'm and, and applying them with the whole management board also to siemens i mean siemens if you think about it it's a fantastic company right i mean we're doing out we're doing electrification we're doing automation we're doing digitalization we're building one of the best trains in the world and the best building automation in the world i mean every third machine in the world is uh, fundamentally a Siemens controller. That's pretty amazing. It's, we have 1.9 million devices installed. We have 14,000 trains. So there is this might, a bit like when I joined in, in 2001 Cisco, there was this might of, of being sort of not dominating. We were looking for another word, having our fair share in the internet routing market. We have our fair share in the industrial and environment market. But the question is that can't be enough. And this moment you described, Siemens had it with, with the loss of the telecommunication business. And what happened then is something which was very impressive is um, we did the second thing, which I learned also um, from, from, from you, which is buy, partner, or make. And Siemens bought itself the capability to be the number one software company in the industrial space. We started really building a complete portfolio saying that we have this hardware and we want to now add the software to link the two together in a way nobody else did. And just to give you a view what that means, it means that on a car, on a car, every door, every handle, every button can be designed with a Siemens software. Every rotation, every lever movement, every vibration can be simulated with a Siemens software. We just take this car, we make out of the idea sort of a model, we then simulate the hell out of it. Then we say, okay, how do you screw it? How do you assemble it? Which robots do you need to take? We then put the layout of the automation in the factory. We then sort of automate it. So this is a complete disruptive idea to say, look, we're not only doing the automation, we're also doing the conception of this idea. And this was built from the fact that digitalization should never sort of overtake us again. What are the things which are adjacent, which help us being better in the things we're doing already? And that's very, very important is to think about when you have a disruptive moment is what do I need to add to my capabilities to be very different and adding value also to the customers, which I have. And, and these are sort of the, the elements which we've done. And Siemens is the number one patent provider in, in, in Germany. It's the number two in, in Europe, number four worldwide. We are investing heavily to be able to make sure that we are ahead of the curve of the disruption rather than being um, behind. You've also, uh, you've opened up about three or four areas I want to delve into, and I'm not sure which one to go to you next, but I'm, I always like starting with customers. Uh, how you've done it yourself on the innovation and digitization and, and reinvented, I would argue, Siemens has done it over the 170 years, multiple times, but at a faster and faster pace. How do you help your customers do that? And is there a secret sauce that has worked for you and for Siemens? Because you have responsibility for making Siemens a tech company, a startup company, a, a software as a service company. How do you take this and how do you bring it to your customers to help them transition? 
So there's two things is you need to be extremely close to the customers to understand what the customer needs before they know what they need. So that's an extremely important sort of aspect of it. And you always have to be a step ahead in terms of coming with advice, actually, rather than I have a lot of salespeople which ask me, look, I'm, I'm just listening to my customer and doing what they want. I mean, that's okay. It's good to listen to the customers, but you need to listen to the customers and say, what can I do to help you more? I'll, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a factory. So my kids ask me, so a factory, an IoT factory produces per month, John, around 2,200 terabytes of data, right? If you translate it, and my kids wanted to translate it, that's, that's half a million Netflix movies, which are produced in a factory, which is completely connected. I mean, Netflix normally has 3,000 movies there. But you yes. know what? No one watches these movies. So they produce this huge amount of data. So the customers have said, look, I need to IoT. I need to connect everything. But they don't do anything with it. They don't create any value. So it's up for us to say, look, we have the tools to come in and really help you do something with it. And just three examples. So we built a complete, or we helped build a complete car factory from scratch, which was completely digital, had a digital twin and had a, a digital sort of automation and real sort of capability with VinFast and uh, a Vietnamese uh, auto manufacturer. They had everything digital and then COVID hit and they said, look, can we build a respirator? And the whole thing was so digital and so integrated that we could get a copy of a respirator, a digital twin, and within one month build 55,000 respirators in the same sort of factory, which most of the existing factories couldn't do. So that's, that's one example. Another example, and that's what you have to do, is, is we were working with uh, uh, BioNTech. So we always talk in the US about Pfizer, but Pfizer actually works with a small German startup called BioNTech, which came up with a vaccine. Never in history have we come up with the issue which COVID created, built up sort of um, the capability to understand, okay, this is COVID. How do we build a vaccine, test the vaccine, and then build millions or billions of vaccines within a year, one year and three, 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 three months. And we helped basically do this. We were working with a small startup which was doing cancer research. That's what they were doing. And then they found out, okay, COVID was hitting and we had all of these digital capabilities to be able for them to be super flexible on reacting. And now they're building hundreds of millions of, of, uh, of um, vaccines, which normally would have taken 10 years. I mean, the pharma industry is super conservative. So what I was trying to say is you need to be close to the customer. You need to understand their problem. You need to think ahead. And as problems arise, you need to bring your capabilities to either build respirators or build vaccine in a much, much faster way than you normally would. And, and that's what we do, right? We, we, we take our technology, we challenge our customers and say, you need the resilience and the flexibility because you never know what's going to hit you. How do you create a sense of urgency? Uh, it's easier for me to create a sense of urgency when there's a crisis and, and so, uh, again, share a story that if you don't change, you'll get left behind. Both of us tell those type of stories from our experience at, at Cisco and yours examples from Siemens as well. Uh, have you found a recipe that works again and again to create a sense of urgency that, that would benefit the listeners of the podcast? Yeah, I mean, I always think that, I mean, how do we learn as kids? How do we learn when we we go to a stove and put our hands near the stove? I mean, our parents tell us three times, don't touch it, it's really hot. But actually, when you start touching it and it's hot, that's when you have this sort of very physical experience and something is, is, is happening to you. In this case, I mean, we've been talking about Industry 4.0, for example, for 10 years. And it we're at, what, 10%, 15% adoption. What happened in COVID has a lot of negative aspects. But no CTO, no uh, uh, no CEO 
was really sort of convinced until actually COVID hit and that you could show and say, look, now with this technology, you can react much faster. So what am I trying to say is you can actually drive change much faster if you can link it back to actually a physical or real experience uh, an executive had. So sometimes these are black swans, which are, which are happening at the moment. Sometimes this okay. is actually monitoring back to where things were. Sorry. You talk about technologies, and, and I move on markets. I, ne- I believe you never compete against a competitor. You compete against market transitions and getting yes. it right. If you're competing against a competitor, you're looking out the rear vision mirror. What technologies are going to have the most impact that will enable business model changes? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it uh, the Internet of Things? Uh, is it blockchain? Uh, 5G, uh, big data. Is there one or two that you're most excited about? And can you translate that to how it's going to change our lives or our business models? Yes, I can. I mean, the, the, the main idea is that I talked to, talk to you about at the beginning about the digital twin. So in order to have a twin of yourself, a digital copy of yourself, you need to do a couple of things. Once you need to get data to be able to build this twin. So IoT, so connecting everything, the internet of everything as we used to call it, or internet of things is extremely important to be able to build a library of data which you use. Right. The second thing which you need to then do is, is you need to be able to do something with this data. I told you half a million Netflix movies are being produced in, in a factory. So I believe very strongly that this information needs to be computed as close as possible to a factory because you're not going to stream 500,000 Netflix uh, movies back and forwards every month. So IoT is important to get data. Edge is important to work on the data as close as possible to the the view. So my, my view is this. The whole industry has moved now to the cloud. It's going to move back to the edge. So that's the second technology, which is making really sort of a big difference. Then you need to be able to work through this huge amount of data. And this is where AI falls into place. AI, if you train AI mechanisms, you can sift through this data and make sense and and, and optimize this capability. So I'll give you an example. We have one of the most modern factories in the world, just got the World Economic Forum gave us the title of the Lighthouse Factory. So it's it's a super modern factory, which we built in the 80s, rebuild it. The problem we had is, is that we are basically every 10 PCB board we have gets scanned, gets gets x-rayed. And we said, okay, but this is very expensive. Every time you buy an x-ray machine, it's 500,000 more. So we use basically AI to get all the data so we could predict during how the different chips were put on the PCB that this PCB needed to be x-rayed and this one didn't need to be x-rayed. So we increased speed of the throughput by 30%. And the way we did it is we collected the data, we put it in the cloud, we build an AI to be able to work through it, and then we put it back in the edge and the edge now is calculating through it and making it much more efficient. That's what happens. That's when you connect IoT for the data edge computing and AI also going forward. And as part of this, 5G plays a huge role because as you're going to have, you have to think in, in, in the past, a bit like in modern times, factories were all about people with stopwatches making people do the same thing faster. That's what was in the past. The world we're in now is much more flexible. We will build a car just for you. We will build a shoe which fits you. We will build things which which is the mass production of one. That's the dream which we have. In order to do this, we need to also do two things. We need to bring in the capability to have additive manufacturing, which enables you to build and, and something much, much closer. And the second thing, we need to build modular factories. So imagine factories which reorganize for exactly the, the product you want and build it exactly the same way you want. And you can only do it by adding, for example, also technology, which I just described, but also 5G um, to be able to do this. You will have robots next to human 
people which work together to be able to do things. Currently, robots are being put behind bars. So a combination of getting the data with IoT, connecting it with 5G, edge computing, artificial intelligence, additive manufacturing in my space are one of the, the key drivers of making the mass manufacturing of one a reality. We talked earlier about how important it is to reinvent yourself. And uh, at Cisco, we did 180 acquisitions. We work with startups very, very effectively. Uh, we work with an ecosystem of partnerships. Real easy to say, really hard to do. I've watched you, especially since you've been back at Siemens, work with startups, work with ecosystem partners. What's your key lessons for the listeners uh, about what really works on this and, and what have you found has, has been successful? And, and if you could share, here's some things that don't work and uh, it either got you in trouble or you watched it, us get in trouble at Cisco uh, by uh, doing something. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I call it, I'm telling everybody, and I, I like this, and we need to go from ego system so to ecosystem. An ecosystem is a system where you think what is best for me and then try to in, invite everybody and say, look, do what I, I want, and then you can work with me. So we have to really move to a different way. You have to create value. You have to actually create more value with people you partner with than for yourself. That's, I think, a, a very, very important thing to think of. And um, it's very hard to do. Actually, that's one of the, the, the main areas because I've, I've seen the not invented here syndrome was a very strong syndrome at Siemens because we were just technologically brilliant. We would invent everything ourselves, but it makes you extremely slow. So how do you bring in the ecosystem, which are universities, startups, other companies to do the things they do really well for you? And I think we learned quite a bit. I mean, um, we, we built, and, and the same thing, we built MindSphere as our IoT uh, um uh, um, sort of capabilities to connect people. And we learned that at the beginning, we tried to do it uh, on just on our products, just on our capabilities and develop it ourselves. And we realized it will never work. The only way it will work is that we invite more than 500 partners or 1,000 partners, which actually develop on it and develop on our products and somebody else's product. So it needs to be open, needs to create more value for, for the people joining than for yourself. And then you need to make sure that you actually put in the trust and there's lots of things for the technical listeners out there. I mean, this comes about building standards everybody can use, like the OPC Foundation for IoT standards, making sure that we all use the same standard. It goes about going to, in the US, the, in the manufacturing environment, there's the Smart Manufacturing Institute. Say, look, I'm creating value. I'll share it with you and you can replicate it. So I think what actually happens is, um, and, and I would love to have also your view, um, John, on this one. If you enter into an ecosystem, really going away from an e ego system is, how do I go into a conversation thinking, how will I create more value for the person joining? How will I make sure that I'm not going to invent everything my, on my own, but you're going to use it? And how do I make sure that everybody then can, can, can replicate it so that it's open for everybody? That's the three sort of magic things. And look, I have lots of, my first, uh, my biggest failure in terms of was, uh, I was one of the first uh, people sort of developing uh, um, uh, the, the mobile internet standards at the time. And we came up with something called the wireless application protocol, what most people pr probably don't know. 100 people coming together, defining something which was very clunky, which everybody was trying to protect their own sort of IP. It failed miserably. It needed sort of open protocols and the internet standard, which Cisco also did really, really well to actually give the whole thing uh, a different sort of approach. Yeah, and in terms of the indirect question you asked me, uh, anytime we did an acquisition or anytime I coach my 20 startups doing acquisitions today, the first thing I ask the team is what's the win, win for the acquisition target? 
uh, or if you're doing an ecosystem partnership, before we even go to talk to the partner, and you've talked to, I think, seven or eight of my startups, we try to anticipate what's the win for Siemens and, and to spend the time always thinking about how does the other person win, which makes it so much easier. And you build trust from the very, very beginning. Uh, one of the most complex, it is the most complex network in the world, is Alliances Geo. Uh, you, and you, you kept doing such a great job. I moved you around a lot. Uh, Mikesh Ambami is an amazing leader. Uh, Matthew runs Geo today. But share with the audience how you approached that and how did you create a win-win environment and what was the stress like? Because when you do something no one else has done with, mm-hmm. with a very demanding partner who's really good, uh, how, do you, how do you navigate through that and how do, you ma- how do you help them win first? Yeah, I mean, the main idea was the following is, is um, I mean, for everybody, Geo is the biggest uh, uh, um, 4G networks, which was built. And it was built on a dream you and Mukesh had at the beginning, right? I mean, you started with a dream. You said, look, why couldn't yes, we build a, a, a network how, uh, for India, which is 10 times faster and 10 times cheaper? So you had a great dream and 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 we we, we set yeah. out and said, look, and we and Mukesh said, look, um, you take the responsibility, Cisco, to implement it. And by this time, you promoted me to actually run the services organization. Yes. <laughs> and I remember Mukesh saying, look, okay, we have this dream. It needs to be executed. Um, Cedric, where are you? And I, I was like, oh, I don't know. I need to put in. And, and, and I came with a traditional sort of approaches toward it. And I thought I did really well. I called my friends uh, or my, my teams over in the UK and says, so how many base station did you install? Oh, we installed 70,000 base station in 18 months. And Mukesh said, fine, you need to do it per week. And, I, and it challenged me. And I remember I went into a meeting thinking, okay, I had things more or less under control. And Mukesh, being who we are, he, he, he clearly expresses dissatisfaction to you and to Chuck. And I thought, okay, this is the end of my career because I come in, I do really well what I used to do, and therefore this is going to work. And, and I was taken apart. And you probably don't remember, you took your arm around me and said, Cedric, this is one of those moments where you will grow. And I said, look, I feel really, really bad. I, I don't feel like I'm growing at the moment. And I took the challenge, and and I have to say, for somebody like Mukesh, every week he would go into a video call with me and go through the elements, and we jointly basically said, look, how do I make sure that Mukesh is successful by challenging the way these networks are being built? What sort of automation can we put in place? What processes can we put in place? And within actually two years, we built the biggest network ever built, and this network put more people on the network than Facebook or any other WhatsApp has done on a physical network and then added 400 million Indians within two and a half years. And it was stable and it worked. And the only way we did it is we didn't think about how do I make money out of this? What is my contract? How do I put it in place? But saying, how do I help somebody who has a crazy dream at the time build something in a time frame we've, which was never built before by using completely different technologies and capabilities. And you helped me a lot and you probably don't remember because I, I felt really small because you, 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 this is daunting, right? To say, how do I do something which normally be done in 18 months per week? And we did it. And, and I had great help and with, with a lot of the people, but we use a lot of te- technology and actually challenging ourselves to think about how do we build the best network in the fastest amount of time. And, um, it was felt what felt to be a failure was one of the biggest sort of growth moments I've ever had. It is still to today the most powerful network in the world by order of magnitude. That is yes. 10x, which is what anybody else has ever done. And it was 
It was catching market transitions. And I remember Makesh's comments to me, John, we're going to take your concept. Voice is going to be free and we're going to do it for video. And we're going to do it at one tenth the cost and 10 times the speed. Uh, it's something that I think leaders in the uh, podcast can learn from too. Uh, we moved you around each time you did a good job and you started literally in sales. Uh, then we would move you to R&D. And in R&D, you learned the technology. And about the time you got comfortable, we moved you to services. But you could have never done geo if you hadn't had all of those learnings, if you will, and the integration. Uh, I lost a lot of hair over geo. <laughs> Me <laughs> too. <laughs> uh, and it was uh, stressful, but it was one of the coolest things I've seen. It changed the nation and, and really was the foundation for India uh, to uh, deliver on Prime Minister Modi's vision of a digital India. Let me switch directions and maybe wrap up with a couple of questions on leadership. What's the best leadership advice you've ever got? And uh, uh, I'm going to also say, what's the worst you've ever got? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think one of the best advices I ever got, look, make mistakes, but make them only once, right? So that's, that's a very good advice because what it basically means is take a risk, but learn from, 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 from the risk you take. Um, the worst advice was be like somebody. You're unique. Everybody is unique. So you can't just emulate somebody else. You need to take your personal strengths and weaknesses. And both of us, I, I know, um, I mean, we have dyslexia, right? I mean, we, I started to be, when I, when I was a kid, um, people were like, I'm not sure you can go to high school. In, in Germany, you need to have a certain sort of capabilities. I remember when I did my A-levels, my... my my the main headmaster teacher was saying, look, I mean, I don't know how you did it, but uh, great, great that you did it. So as such, you should always, you're unique, you have your strengths, you have your weaknesses, you need to fully endorse them and, and, and go with them. And you need to continuously challenge with them. And actually the best, the best advice I got was actually an experience I got, if I can just take one second. Sure. Um, so I went through it. Um, I went to university, graduated as, as one of the best of my university, had an ego bigger than the moon. And, uh, and my mother um, actually said, look, I mean, you have a mentally handicapped brother. She said, look, I mean, it would be good for you to spend um, one and a half years with your brother. I mean, he lives in a community uh, with disabled uh, um, uh, uh, children, which, uh, which basically had uh, um, a sort of, uh, um, how do you call it, Down syndrome, which had um, autism, which had muscular dystrophy. And she said, look, this will be good for you. So I come with my ego thinking that I'm really good. I, I'm, I'm really intelligent. I know what to do. And it put me right down to a level where all of my skills were useless, right? All of the intellectual skills you normally have were not, were not, not applicable. So I had to reinvent myself on a human connection level to be able to, to do this. And it, it grounded me in humility in a way that I think that no MBA, no other elements in my life has formed me as much as being able to connect with those children, help those children, and they help me also. So my advice, there's lots of books you could read, and that's good. You, you can get lots of advice, but there's also very, very important lessons which you can have in, in, your, in your career or in your personal environment, which will form you in a very different way and make you a very different leader. And that's good. I hope that makes sense. It makes tremendous sense. Uh, lessons learned in life. Uh, uh, you you gave an example earlier about you know, we were trained in school and even though you're you're one generation behind me you were trained the same way just do it 
being three to five percent better, and that's what made you successful in business or in life. And clearly, in a, a world where there's huge inflection points, that's doing the right thing too long is exactly what gets you into trouble. Is there a lesson you've learned in your life that you could share with all of us that you wish you'd learned earlier? The one for me was Shimon Perez, the late president of Israel. He always reinvented himself and he always dreamed big. I mean, really big. And he understood what technology would do to enable the dreams that he was trying to, to implement. But each time we were together and I worked with him directly and indirectly for 17 years, he was always challenging me to dream bigger and to take more risk and do more things. And as you know, uh, at Cisco, I occasionally got <laughs> criticized for trying to do too many things or dreaming too big. And in hindsight, uh, I should have dreamed even bigger and taken even more risk and even more failures because that's, you know, it's a portfolio play in terms of the direction. I'm now doing that with my startups, 20 startups that uh, if we've done right, uh, maybe as many as three, four, seven will become unicorns. And in literally less than four years, we've already got six that are unicorns and we've got another six in the pipeline and they might lead their industry. So I'm, I'm dreaming bigger than ever, uh, Cedric, doing everything from solving world hunger with with crickets uh, uh, to using artificial intelligence to change the customer experience to cybersecurity to anticipate and prevent the solar winds type of attack. Uh, what's your best piece of advice that you learned later in your career that you wish you'd learned earlier? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and this was back to a discussion we also have, you will regret the things you didn't do, not the things you did. I mean, that's an extremely important advice because it basically pushes you to actually drive much, much further than you actually feel comfortable. So, and that's that's one advice which um, I got, which is extremely important because in hindsight, it's very easy to explain why you didn't take a certain risk. Now, you need to do it, of course, when you're responsible. In my case, I'm responsible for 73,000 people directly. You need to take them Consciously, it's not about taking crazy risk, but it's to say, look, what are the things I just have to do because this is good. It's going to be good in three years. It's going to be good in five years. And I don't want to regret having done this. So that's one very important advice. The second one you gave me, and I remember the first time we we had really sort of a chat, you brought me into your room and you said, look, this is my fishing. These other presidents I met and said, okay, that's that's John Chambers, uh, sort of the corporate one. And I asked you very directly, so, so how is it to be a leader? And you said, it's sometimes extremely lonely. It is when you take those risks, when you change those companies, is you don't get the reward the moment you do it. You get it three years later or five years later. So the advice is, is as you're going to take those risks, you're going to be feeling lonely about those. It's not yet you're going to be, have a full endorsement by your whole organization. And that was an extremely important one because change is a risky business. Um, transformation is a risky business. And it's it's a business which doesn't feel good. It feels sometimes lonely because you're ahead of the curve. And you need to, as a leader, being able to do it. Of course, you have to bring your people with you. But I think these were two advices, which I think which are important. Be very careful not to regret the things you didn't do. And when you do them, okay, however it feels, you will it will feel lonely, but you need to make sure that you stand there, you go in that direction, and you bring everybody on board. And these are two things I brought with me coming over to Siemens. You know, it's been such a great session. I'm always a believer that the first question and the first great answer and the last question, when you get a great answer to it, that's when you, uh, as any good salesperson knows, close the session. Uh, I think that last answer.
and you you do it so humbly. You just mentioned seventy three thousand people in your organization that you lead. Uh, uh, and how do you you share that and how do you educate people? Cedric, I cannot thank you enough, first, for the friendship. Secondly, for how you're changing companies and a, a role model for many of us, uh, but also spending the time today on the podcast. For the listeners, I want to thank you for joining us today. Continue to give us the feedback on topics you'd like to see us discuss with leaders around the world uh, and uh, leaders that you'd like to hear from. So, Cedric, once again, thank you. It's been a real honor to spend this time together today. Thank you, John. 